0: Good to have you back. Happy Friday, everybody. He is Adrian Broaddus. I'm Steve Kaplow. We're coming together right here. 600 ESPN El Paso. So our telephone number is 505-6009. That is 505-6009. Jarrell Satterfield going to Portland State. Congrats, Jarrell. I mean, I think that... Keontae Kennedy will probably land in a Power 5. He's visiting Vanderbilt this weekend, SEC. You already know Xavier with um, Sule. Biennemi's pro, going pro. Um, No portal plans for uh, Jamal. And Titus is Northwestern. Other than that, all these minors, they're all going to go small schools. They are. Because if they want to play and they want to roll, they're not going to be able to go, um, you know, high or mid-major. This is what you're going to see. Southwest Louisiana for Christian Agnew. Portland State for Jarrell Satterfield. Western New Mexico is where Emmanuel White went. I mean, this is just, the, this is the facts. The facts are, is that, you know, and that's the thing to understand, folks. I know a lot of minor fans are like, oh my God, the whole team's in the portal. Well, some of them are in the portal by design. Others are in the portal because they just want to play. And they know they're not going to see much floor action at UTEP, and they would you know they, they're gonna go small school for a chance to play. Christian is gonna have a chance to get points at Southeast Louisiana. Um Satterfield's gonna have a chance to score at Portland State. But I mean, even if you look at Nigel Hawkins and Jordan Lathan and what that what happened with them after they transferred, they're all kind of small school guys. I mean you know that's just it's the facts. So, I mean, minor fans are upset about the portal, but understand that Joe Golding wants a team of guys that he feels he can have a chance to 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 go compete for a postseason title, and and have another big season. And some of those guys on the portal that were in his on his roster, they weren't going to get it done. He knew it. They knew it. So now they're going small school because they want an opportunity to try to play.
1: Most definitely, you're only looking at guys like Bonky, Maring, Cam, Clardy, uh, Keza, Jifa. Those are the only guys who are who need to still make their uh, announcement as and far Kennedy. as yeah, Kennedy of course. Those are the four that need to make their announcement for their next school and their destination. Yeah, you're exactly right. Visiting Vanderbilt today, Keontae Kennedy posting pictures out in Nashville, Tennessee. So uh, we'll see if he ends up going there uh, and joining the SEC and Vanderbilt, or if he goes elsewhere. And uh, you know, still has a couple other visits. on Along the horizon here,
0: I don't know where else he's going. I have no idea. Keontae hasn't exactly been, uh, you know, open with who's been contacting him, so he's kept everything pretty close uh, to the vest. Maybe, maybe Vanderbilt's the thing. Listen, if he wants to go Power Five, even though Vandy's not a team that's really any good, um, you know, you want to go to a high major, go play and play in the SEC, yeah, go sign with Vanderbilt.
1: Yeah, Vanderbilt's real bad. Let's just be honest right now. Their program has not been, you know, they had Darius Garland, who's like one of the best young point guards in the NBA just a couple years ago, and they couldn't figure out anything to do with him. So, you know, their their program has just um, not really been uh, a successful one. Maybe Keontae Kennedy can help uh, bring something to the table on their side, get some minutes in the SEC, and at least play in front of nationally te- televised audiences uh, when we're talking about Vanderbilt basketball.
0: They were really good in the non-conference, and then they finished 11th in the SEC 19 and 17 overall so it wasn't I mean you know they were if they were 12 and 6 in the non-conference and then they were 7 and 11 in SEC play which put them 11th so because if you look at the SEC just about everybody is over 500 with the exception of Missouri Ole Miss and Georgia everybody in the SEC was better than 500 but not everybody is over 500 in conference play.
1: Yeah, I guess right now you're just looking at Jerry Stackhouse and thinking maybe he could try to turn it around. But, you know, I I don't know. I mean, 2022 going uh, with 19 wins for Vandy, uh, that's the best finish they've had in a while. Uh, The pandemic-shortened season just won 11 games. 2021 won just nine games. Uh, Not like Vandy's uh, uh, hanging any banners anytime soon.
0: And they need somebody to replace Scottie Pippen Jr., who's going into the NBA draft.
1: That's right. Uh, I heard about that earlier this week they're looking for kind of like a stretch two guard. That's Keontae Kennedy right there. If he decides to go over there, uh, I'm not sure how Keontae Kennedy will do in the SEC. But maybe he, if if this is his landing spot, if he wants this, maybe he can help uh, Jerry Stackhouse's team gr- improve from a 19 win team next
0: year. And let's see what they could do. Uh, I hope so. I really do. Um, again, our telephone number five zero five six zero zero nine. As we continue here on Sports Talk. Uh, by the way, even though Verbal Commits is reporting it and all the TV stations said that Shamar Gavance is uh, going to be a minor, he still has not put anything yet on any of his social media accounts, which I find very interesting. So when you look at uh, you know Shamar's uh, Twitter handle, there is still nothing there. When you look at him on his Instagram handle... There is no UTEP, um, at least as of now. So that could always change. Maybe over the weekend he makes it official. You know, we were thinking that this was going to happen all the way back on Wednesday when news first started to circulate about uh, about Shamar. But so far, still no word from his social media accounts. That uh, that he's going to end up a minor. Maybe Shamar just doesn't care about social media, Adrian, and, and just won't even uh, won't even put that up there.
1: Yeah, it's been made official, it seems like, by a lot of different people. So uh, yeah, it just seems like for him, he hasn't posted it or or made some kind of a Instagram or Twitter announcement on this whatsoever. So I don't know. Maybe he's waiting for the the you know photo edits to get back to him in order to post something. You think that's it? Who knows? I mean, it's so weird that it's taken this long to make it official on his side. I just don't understand that. If you're a prospect, getting excited, uh, tweet out or send out an
0: Instagram post of where you're going next. I mean, they're sending out Instagrams of Southeast Louisiana and Portland State. So you would think, you know, you'd, you'd put something on there about UTEP. Yeah, you, you I'm, would think. I'm with you on that. Like, it, it's just taking a while. So
1: I, I'm, I'm, I feel like this, you know, this uh, whole program's model. It's not about rushing anything, no. even announcements for that matter. Even when they, it seems like they're almost official or, uh, you know, pretty much official, it just needs to be said by the actual player itself. It's so
0: laid back. It's crazy. It's like ah, we'll get around to it whenever. Don't worry about it. Just be here in June for summer school, and we'll be okay.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, that mentality. If you, as long as you're winning in March, and in, as long as you're winning in February, that mentality is fine, right? I mean, recruiting. Really, you know, as long as you start winning games in both non-conference and league play, doesn't really matter on social media. All, all that you want to post. Hey,
0: yeah, we got a pretty good show today, don't we?
1: Oh yeah, we got a great show. I'm so excited.
0: Uh, we got ask a doctor coming up in about um, thirty minutes from now. Um, I'm excited about it. I mean, 35 minutes from now, we get uh, Dr. Setio Alvarado with us. Also, at 5 o'clock, I'm excited about this. Kostya Kennedy's got a brand-new book out called True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. And is going to join us on Sports Talk via Zoom live at 5 to talk about this. Now, uh, he has also written books like 56, Joe DiMaggio, and The Last Magic Number in Sports, Pete Rose, An American Dilemma. So, Kostya Kennedy, he uh, he took on Jackie Robinson, and since we all know that this was the 75th anniversary of Jackie breaking the color barrier, uh, it's only fitting that somebody's got a new book out, and he takes a look at four seasons of Jackie Robinson, and that would be 1946 in Montreal before he broke the color barrier. 1949 in which he was uh having the opportunity to uh, really come into his own with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1949. And then after that, the other two years, well, you know, they might surprise you a little bit, but one was 1956, his last year in baseball, and then 1972, which is uh his last year before he passed away. So interesting when you look at uh, the years that uh, Akasha took. Part one, spring of 46. Part two, summer of 49. Part three, autumn of 56. Part four, winter of 72. And that's what this book is about. We're going to get a chance to talk to Kasia Kennedy live at 5 to talk about uh, True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson here today on Sports Talk.
1: I love these kinds of books because when you are hyper-focused on certain years, certain seasons like that, you get the great accounts from people who are around him and just the historical uh, you know, things that he's able to pull from this. So, yeah,
0: th- I'm really looking forward to this conversation coming up at 5. I am too. And then we've got uh, Hags uh, at – about 5.45 with story time, and then we'll break out at 6 and get you ready for uh, the weekend uh, home road trip, which continues with uh, Sugar Land and El Paso tonight at 6.05.
1: Man, Luke Voigt needs to start hitting with the Chihuahuas, Steve. I mean, uh, what's going on here? They they lost yesterday to the Space Cowboys. You know, they've been doing all
0: right. You're hilarious. it's an injury rehab. It's not like he's here for good. I know, but I want to see him, you know. Luke Voight's got hit. Luke Voigt's going back to San Diego in a couple of I days, know he no is. matter what it is. It's just that's I, I, listen, they all need to hit, right? The only guy that's hitting is Nomar Mazar. He's hitting every game, but everybody else, they gotta get the bats rolling right now. One run against Sugarland. Come on.
1: Well, they, they had a, a great opportunity to make it five in a row yesterday, and they allowed the Space Cowboys to come back late in the game yesterday. So, you know, just hold on to it. Just c- continue to try to win these games as, as best as you can.
0: Maybe we can get you on the phone with Luke Voigt before the game starts Let's tonight, do it. and you can give him a little pep talk and tell him he to start hitting the baseball a little bit and kind of get the Chihuahuas back on the winning track. What do you say? I'll do it. I'm down. I would love that. Uh, we'll call Hags. You know, he'll probably go to the dugout. Let's see if he can just hand his cell phone over to Luke, and and, and we'll just put him on the air and just tell him, hey, you know what, come on, Luke, uh, Adrian's concerned. He needs your offense for this team to start winning some ball games. We know it's an injury rehab, and you just need to get your swings in, but how about putting the ball in play and, and uh, making some hard contact and driving in some runs? He might be
1: asking me the questions and say, hey, when am I getting to San Diego?
0: He might be. That's very possible, too. 13 past uh, here on Sports Talk. If you want to weigh in today on our Friday edition of the program, 505-6009. That is our telephone number, 505-6009. As uh, we get going and have a lot more in store for you, Um, if you watched any of uh, the playoffs last night, whether it was uh, NBA playoff hoops or the, uh, which, by the way, there were no games last night. Remember, we talked about this. There were no basketball games last night because TNT and TBS had hockey. And by the way, uh, that is a good thing, not a bad thing. I love the fact that I get to listen to Kenny Albert call Ranger hockey. Uh, TNT has excellent play-by-play guys on board. So last night, 5-2 Rangers, 5-1 Panthers beating the Caps, tying that series at a game apiece, and then... Colorado just uh, needing overtime to beat the Predators 2-1 to to take that 2-0 lead. And also uh, 1-1 after the Stars beat the Flames 2-0 yesterday. So four good series. Three of them right now are all tied up at one apiece. One of them, the Avalanche, uh, able to take care of business uh, against the Predators as they'll go back to Nashville for games uh, three and four. And then, Adrian, tonight we've got Hurricanes Bruins uh, at 5 We've got Maple Leafs, Lightning at five thirty. That's the TNT, TBS games, and then the late games: Wild, Blues, and Oilers, Kings. I think the Wild, Blues could be the best series of all of them right now in hockey.
1: Well, I don't know. I still love that Rangers, Penguins one. But but
0: but they're playing. The Rangers are going up against a third string goalie. No, I understand. If you can't beat him, um,
1: then you got a problem. Well, but hey, uh, after losing an emotional uh, game like you did in game one, it's tough to bounce back. So it's encouraging that the Rangers did bounce back yesterday. I mean, yesterday was the, the day of everybody kind of bouncing back, even yeah. the Predators after getting killed in the first game against the Avalanche. They come back yesterday. They make it a really tight game against the Avalanche and send it to overtime, really putting it up to up for grabs in that late game. And, uh, you know, that one was very entertaining. I loved how the Stars bounced back and got that victory as well. So yeah. uh, the only only ones who I, I feel like are real dominant right now. It's like Carolina. The, what Carolina has done so far, they seem like the dominant ones uh, so far in the
0: playoffs. I just, I feel bad for Penguins fans because Louis Domingue is not who you want to hold your hopes with for the, uh, they had an all-star goalie that gets hurt. Then their backup is out for the rest of the playoffs. And now Louis Dominguez is playing. I mean, that, that is a tough, tough spot. For anybody that, that played two games all season and is really a career backup and minor league goalie. So that's what Pittsburgh's dealing with. Then we got Heat Sixers tonight and Suns Mavericks because the NBA just had a very convenient skip day yesterday where there was no games played. So really, must win if you're Philly must win if you're Dallas tonight at home. You do not want to go down 0-3 in either of those two series.
1: We might see the masked Joel Embiid tonight. If yes. he decides to come back. He uh, has he, to. He has to, Steve. I'm with you on that because they can't rely on James Harden. You you want to start relying on Tyrese Maxey, but maybe three years from now, not now. He's he's only a second year guy and it's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure to, to just rely on him solely. So yeah, the Sixers must win tonight. I don't think the Mavs are going to get a win, but let's see if Luka has some magic left in him.
0: I hope so. Make these a series, please. I don't want them to end so quick. I don't want to see a sweep.
1: I want to see it go six or seven. me too i i think that the ones that might go six or seven that's the grizzlies warriors bucks celtics those are the series right there these right here that we're looking at phoenix dallas miami philly i'm not sure if they're going to go the distance these might be close to sweeps hundred percent
0: 17 pass good to have you aboard on our friday edition of the program again would love to hear from you our lines are available this is the way to do it and uh, we would love to hear ah interesting Dennis Dodd, when we come back, he's talking about NIL rules and boosters. We'll explain that when we continue as we go to Charlie One and get our first traffic update of the afternoon. Okay? It's one thing to compensate players that are already on campus playing for you. That that makes sense to me, all right? But when you offer somebody huge NIL dollars to come and play for you, well, that's not the purpose of NIL, all that's doing is taking what coaches have done for years and make it legal. You know, they used to do that under the table. It was always the, hey, come for us and we'll make sure you get that extra, you know, 50, 75, 100, 200, whatever it is. Now, they can just do it through NIL opportunities in their recruiting pitch, which is... It should be completely illegal because it makes no sense. And it's why Dennis Dodd tackled this on CBSSports.com today, Adrian.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway that I have for this is the NCAA has zero answer to NIL and how to regulate NIL across college sports. It's separating the power fives from the mid majors. It's separating the big donor schools like Alabama, Texas, USC, in terms of college football, with all the others. Uh, this is an alarming thing right now. And we when it happened, when it first got passed, I felt like the NIL rules were very rushed by the NCAA. They never had a proper format, and because of that, uh, we are we are experiencing the ripple effects of that now. Um, because of the NCAA's negligence to uh, fully un, you know develop a plan for this and uh, form some rules and regulations.
0: So here's what we're talking about, folks. Uh, this is what's interesting. Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith told CBS Sports Today, we know we're going to get lawsuits. And what that means is, um, you know, because of schools upset that NCAA will try to enforce the process uh, of NIL uh, and and the abuses that's happening. Now, they want to pass this as soon as Monday. So, um... You know, Gene Smith is a member of the NIL Working Group formed two months ago to deal with growing questions of illicit activity. As Dodd mentioned, despite the threat of legal liability, Smith said the NCAA and his subcommittee are determined to put up meaningful guardrails around NIL, which in some cases has uh, you know edged close to pay for play. So here's what he's looking to do. This is specific, okay? If boosters are found... To have collaborated with a program to use NIL benefits as an incentive to lure prospects to the school, the penalties could be severe, according to Smith. Options include cutting scholarships, instituting recruiting restrictions, and hitting programs and perhaps coaches with lack of institutional control penalties. Those are punishments associated with level one violations. By the way, based on everything I've heard for NIL right now, 95% of all schools are probably guilty of that, the way this is going.
1: Yes, your big schools, your small schools in between, everybody's kind of guilty of something, uh, some wrongdoings with this. But r- right now, the problem is NIL, it's the Wild, Wild West. So even though, even if they have something in place on Monday, it just creates basic uh, rules and regulations. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's going to even be agreed upon by the, the board of committees uh, and uh, the universities as well.
0: Well, all I know is that when it comes to football and basketball, Athletes are getting paid big, big. Why do you think so many athletes are in the portal? Because they know they can get paid to go someplace else. I mean, you got athletes tweeting out tongue emojis with dollar signs hanging out of it. What do you think is going on right now? So the, the crazy thing is, is that, all right. This is their way of trying to crack down. And by the way, it's hilarious that Gene Smith is on this because I'm sure Ohio State is just as guilty as everybody else when it comes to uh, attracting, you know, dollars from boosters to give incoming players a chance to make some extra money before they arrive?
1: The first AD or the first uh, coach to get upset with NIL, that's a red flag for me, Steve, because I think in my head that school is invested against NIL because they just lost a recruit to somebody who's recruiting for NIL. Let's be honest, anybody who's going to Ohio State and is a big-name guy, they're going to get some substantial money for NIL. Real quick, Pittsburgh Wider Receiver Jordan Addison uh, randomly hit the transfer portal recently, like out of the blue. And there are reports from CBS's Dennis Dodd that USC is throwing multi-million dollar NIL deals at him. I mean, that's just, you know, that's horrible. It's going to kill the yeah. bottom part, uh, the bottom teams of the Power Fives if somebody can just slide in a player's DMs and say, hey, you want a, mi- a couple million dollars to come transfer over here?
0: Agreed. And by the way, the most likely penalty for boosters who are not compelled to cooperate in NCAA investigations is the threat of disassociation from a school, meaning that that individual cannot interact with the university in any way, like the Reggie Bush situation that went down years ago with him at USC.
1: Yeah, this is still a really weird thing that's going on. This was the best uh, line that I found in this article. NIL isn't necessarily a bullet point for a committee, but maybe the single biggest factor that will shape college athletics
0: going forward. Interesting. And by the way, I do love how boosters have disguised the pay-for-play as NIL. But But we all knew that was happening. I mean, would you? This is the stupidest part. What did you think was going to come out of this? Did you really think that when you came up with this NIL idea that they weren't going to fu- – this This happened mo- instantly, the minute the NIL came out with. And the NCAA, they're morons to to think that, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. Well, what did you think was going to happen? You're yeah, just going to pay players and that was it?
1: You're lucky if you're getting a commercial out of this or a photo op with the player. Please. No, this is just a, a million-dollar transaction right so here. So
0: ridiculous. Bottom of the hour, let's go to Adrian and get this Sports Center update. Adrian, thank you very much. Uh, Pinky tweets the program. Should the NCAA put a limit on NIL monies? It's going to be a bidding war for schools and sponsors. Another NCAA battle situation. I mean, it already is a bidding war when it comes to NIL money. Pinky, it's there already. Don't think that it's not there. It's there already. And by the way, should they limit a cap on it? Yeah. Probably not. I mean, it'd be hard to do because certain schools um, just have so much more money than others. But that would definitely limit the playing field if they did cap it. There's no doubt about it. Once you spend it, you spend it. But they'll never do that. And athletes will probably argue, hey, we should have unlimited opportunities to make money. You can't tell us how much we're going to be able to make. We should be able to make as much as we can get.
1: Can you imagine how confusing it could be if they threw a salary cap per sports on all the different programs? That'd be way too much to try to keep up with. Or per
0: athlete oh man yeah way too much right there exactly you can't do that they just they got to control it there's no control right now it truly is the wild west and by the way if you don't think that recruiting is all about nil dollars it absolutely is It really is.
1: That's right. Uh, Teams, players, they are recruiting for dollars. Sometimes a recruit will go to a visit uh, and he will ask kind of how much money is he going to get. And you're, you're, you're always wondering, there's such a gray area when it comes to all this stuff right there, but you're always wondering how much, how is this handled right there? Why is this player going after these kinds of dollars? And then if they're only after the money, that just shows you where the priority lands for some of these players.
0: 100%. A hundred percent. So, but I am fascinated to know that this could happen as soon as Monday. I mean, that really is interesting. And it sounds like they're not so upset with uh, the NIL deals for existing players. They're more about players that are getting paid to go certain places. That's that's what really is hurting so many teams is that, you know, you, you entice somebody with um, you know five six, seven figure deals that's 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 great money.
1: It's enticing in the name alone though, because if you're a a player at a small school and you think, Man, I just had a great year, I'm gonna parlay all this greatness that i've I've put together this season and go off to another
0: school and make me some money. That's right. That is absolutely correct. you want to tweet the show, we'd love to hear from you. 600 ESPN El Paso on Twitter. That is 600 ESPN El Paso on Twitter. All right, about a half an hour from now, Kostya Kennedy will join us live on Zoom to talk. Jackie Robinson with his new book, True. Excited about Kostya. Excited about the doc. Sergio Alvarado is next. Desiree Institute of Sports Medicine. Ask a doctor. As we continue, 600 ESPN El Paso. And it's time once again for Ask a Doctor with the Jock Doc, Dr. Sergio Alvarado with us uh, here inside our Lubingo studios as we continue on Sports Talk. Doc, great to see you back face-to-face. How you doing? Thanks, Steve. Great to see you guys, too. Man, oh man, the weather's starting to heat up in El Paso, isn't it? We're starting to get to now. Now you feel like it's getting to be summer, right? Yeah, we have... it's
2: the, the, get the
0: cold drinks out. That's right. Uh, any special beverages that you have? After all, it was just a Cinco de Mayo. Uh, any uh, any fun celebration uh, I mean, on that day?
2: Yeah, you know what we had. We, maybe we had. We drank one margarita and kind of stopped there. Wow, you have
0: you have discipline. That is good, <laughs> Doc. I wish I could say the same for myself. It's not usually <laughs> the case, but that's uh, that's good. Uh, we love to talk about uh, Cinco de Mayo for another year, right? That's, that's the most right. important thing. <laughs> um, how are things going right now? By the way, at your new expanded location, twenty two sixty seven Traywood Suite uh, G two, things uh, are hopping right now, aren't they?
2: Yeah, you know what? Uh, the summer's uh, end of end of uh, seasons that we saw a lot of uh, track athletes and and uh, a lot of them did good and. A uh, couple of patch jobs right before regional, so uh, they did good, you know.
0: Patch jobs. Got to keep everybody. Got to keep everybody in in, in one piece. Don't yeah. It?
2: Well, the thing is, like the it, you know that sometimes like that's that's with with athletes. You know, we we tell them if I had a magic wand, this is what I would do. And with the magic wand, I would I would obviously you know tell them we got two two months of of therapy, but they got regionals the next week, so we do as best you know.
0: Hey, I do want to mention one thing that you're offering summer specials for sports physicals. Just twenty bucks. Twenty bucks, Doc. Get you a sports physical at the Desert Institute of Sports Medicine.
2: That's right. So just show up and twenty bucks. Yeah, like you know, the thing is, a lot of it, a lot of people forget. You know, the the main goal in with sports physicals is is to make make sure there's nothing going on with the heart. And a lot of these places, unfortunately, you know, like uh, they set up shop and they they really don't don't do justice to the, the sports physical
0: well You do, because you've been in the business a long time. You know athletes. That's what you specialize in. So when you handle a sports physical, you know you're getting your money's worth and then some. And 20 bucks is about the best deal you're going to find anywhere in town.
2: That's right. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't think you'll get a better deal.
0: Call 915-256-9751 to set up an appointment. 915-256-9751 for uh, Dr. Sergio Alvarado and the Desert Institute of Sports Medicine. Now, today we're going to talk about Osteoporosis. For people that have heard the term but don't really know what exactly that entails, why don't you go ahead and, and explain to everybody what osteoporosis is all about, Doc?
2: Bone thinning, bone thinning. So that like, sounds
0: like fun. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> well, you know what? It's not, and, and unfortunately, you know what? Um, people find out about it the after the fact, and after they fractured, and and uh, it's it's a debilitating disease that that you know um, I call it the the, the stepchild of, of diseases because it's really overlooked.
0: Well, I didn't even know that May is Osteoporosis Awareness Month. That's important news in itself, because the idea here is getting people aware of what bone thinning is, how you can
2: detect it, and, and how you can try to prevent it. Right. Right. And so the thing is that that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, right now, you know, the the unfortunate part is is we're seeing less screening. The the DEXA scan is is x ray uh, study done, and and we're seeing less and less and yet you know we're seeing more and more fractures and and uh, people need to be aware that uh it's a disease that that needs to be uh addressed
0: is there a certain age where you really start to detect osteoporosis more than let's say other ages
2: well so the, this is and and this is where we're still I guess lacking uh that's, that's a great question um at you know the the average age of menopause we're we're, we're talking about 50s and and so um Generally, the the Dexas the which is the, the bone study, they're approved by, by uh, the insurance companies at age sixty five. But if you got other stuff going on, if you, if you have a family history, if you were a smoker, if you've already had fractures, you you need to get that as asap. You know, after age fifty, normally yeah. the, the age that, that you're seeing it is is uh, sixty and beyond. You know,
0: but you said something really interesting. If you've had bone fractures, you should get looked at. So yes.
2: ultimately, that's how it starts, right? Right. And so the thing is, a, a lot of people have this, this uh, misconception that they're like, well, you know what? Uh, grandma had a hard fall and that's why she broke her hip. And, and uh, the hip is one of the strongest bones we got. So there, there's no reason for, for that to fracture, not, not even if she's 80. You know, so, that, so um, any, any adult fracture, any, any fracture after the age of 40... Even the wrist, you you should be getting looked at.
0: Great, that's that's that. You just you just nailed it because you know I fell off an ATV about six years ago in my early to mid forties. Um, had a metal plate, eleven screws uh, in my wrist. Feels fine now. Have a nice scar to prove, but obviously it happened after my forties, so I have to keep an eye on that, don't I?
2: Yeah, and 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 well, I guess with with you, I mean, this was heavy trauma. I'm sure. Nine, nah, you know, from the ATV, nah it no was big a deal. Little, I, I one or ki- two flips. I, you know, like I that. thought
0: I, 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 <laughs> I thought I killed myself, but I survived it enough to uh, just uh, <laughs> yeah. escape with a broken wrist. Doc, it could have been a lot worse, right? Right.
2: Yeah. The could've. ATV
0: actually rolled. This is no joke. The ATV rolled on my back. I thought I broke my back at first. I did, and then I realized as I was able to kind of get my breath and knocked a wind out of me that I got lucky, survived that. Knew I broke my wrist right out of the gate. Didn't hurt. Uh, and and ultimately ended up having the surgery to repair it, which they recommended instead of just trying to heal and see if it healed right over time. But I get the idea. If you've broken a bone, especially after forty, uh, you should definitely keep an eye out.
2: Yeah, no, really, and and and, uh, and let and let your doctor know, you know, because really, like, uh, they they got to get a jump on the disease. And and really, that that's I think that's the most important th- thing about you know with osteoporosis is is we really we're really lacking the the. The the studies you know being done earlier and to detect uh, osteoporosis before you have that first fracture.
1: Now, Steve mentioned a hand, but where do the most common fractures occur when it comes to osteoporosis?
2: So, osteoporosis it it usually affects trabecular bone, and when you when you think of bone, you know usually think of smooth. That's cortical bone, and and when you think of like the, the little cross section when you see the pictures, that's trabecular bone. And so, where do we have more trabecular bone? The lumbar spine, the hip, and the wrist, what do we fracture the most? The lumbar spine, the hip, and the, the wrist. And and usually, you know, like, again, the story will usually be grandma got up to go to the restroom at night and then tripped or somehow fell, like, you know, going to the restroom at night mm-hmm. and then uh, ends up with a broken hip. But I've had others where, where you know, like I, I tell the patients it's not just about falls. It's also about heavy lifting. I, I had a patient that fractured uh, lifting a, a gallon of milk. She fractured her wrist. I Had another patient that that fractured uh, moving the the her, her uh, pots for from her garden, and another one from from even uh, this one was really severe though her osteoporosis, but she fractured its sneezing. So, sneezing? Yeah. Sneezing. I've
0: heard of sneezing. you in baseball, you've heard guys wow. sneeze and will go on the DL. Yeah, with the, people with just kind of like yeah, yeah, that's a violent lot. I mean, when, sneezes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I mean, even even though when 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 I see patients, we talk about you know. Uh, giving your, your back some support for, for sneezing. I know it, it sounds you're like, geez, like sneezing, and, and, and that's how, how, how weak the bones are for these people that have osteoporosis.
0: Dr. Sergio Alvarado with us from the Desert Institute of Sports Medicine. Now, you mentioned she, uh, women in terms of this, older women. Is that Are they generally more common to develop osteoporosis than men?
2: Yes, and, and, uh, but that doesn't mean that, that I, I don't see males as well. Um, what, one of the most preventable risk factors out there is, is smoking. And and so of course you see it you know uh, in both both sexes um, and the genes you know so the the patients I've had you know a lot of the the patients that that I've had that are male usually they they're they're uh, heavy smokers or they they have the genetics um, sometimes. Uh, some of the treatments for for prostate cancer uh will will also cause osteoporosis.
0: Does smoke does, does the smoke in smoking does it break down bones over time? Is that what happens?
2: What happens is 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 the, the act of, of smoking uh it dilates the the blood vessels and so there's less blood circulation and so bone is a living organ you know so what happens is they they start pretty much killing off the the bone. And that's how diabetes actually kind of does the same thing with with osteoporosis the the Kind of like the what what it happens with diabetes. It's it's kind of like the it starts eating away at the arteries and makes them weaker, and then there's there's not as good circulation for, for the bone. What about
0: body size or, or frame, Doc? Do you find that there's certain bodies that are just uh, more prone to osteoporosis than others?
2: Yes. So so uh, thin thin people. This is one time where where being thin is, is not in your your favor. Uh, when when astronauts the, they first uh, started send, sending astronauts to the moon. They they realized that that gravity, you know, it gravity helps us. Uh, it, it's like a, wearing a, a weighted vest and you, you take it off once you get into space. So the, these uh, astronauts were coming back and and they were not uh, um, they were having problems with their bones.
1: This is a big part of your your uh, the Desert Institute of Sports Medicine, your office. Uh, why is this so pa- why are you so passionate about osteoporosis and just, you know, pr- uh, creating a creating awareness for it?
2: Well, and, and I, you know, going back to what we talked about, I think it's it's a disease that that is really debilitating. And um, the fact that you know the the you know when when you have a that first fracture, a, a, a quarter of those people will die within that year from complications. Ugh. A third will never leave a walker. And when you're looking at you know, for me, it's it's always been a, the the preventative side. You know, like how can we stop disease? I don't I don't want to be treating and helping somebody that, that's already had that hip fracture. I want I want to make sure that they, they, uh, they don't have that first fracture, and and I think um, we got to step up, and and unfortunately, um, we got to do better. Um, and I think uh, at the Desert Institute, we're, we're we're putting a dent in it. Um, we we treat it holistically, so we don't just look at hey, like we're gonna get them the best meds that they can, and then we're gonna also make sure that that uh, we we address. Fall prevention strategies, and then even address the the fact that making sure that the, the home is safe or for to prevent falls.
0: Are there warning signs, things that could happen before the break itself that could at least give somebody the heads up that hey, I need to get myself checked because this could be serious.
2: It's it's tough, but I, I guess the the big one would probably be like just the risk factors alone. You know, like if you know you smoke, uh, you you need to get checked. If if you you know you have uh, you're taking chronic steroids like prednisone. Uh, people that have rheumatoid arthritis, you should be checked. Uh, if you have a strong family history, you're like, hey, you know what? Uh, a lot of pe- times people are like, oh, yeah, know. like uh, I don't have a family history. And then and I, we ask about grandma. and You're like, oh, yeah, she fractured her hip. And it's like that's not, that's not normal, you know. Um, so I think addressing the risk factors and making sure that, that if you have any of those risk factors that, that you're getting that, that DEXA scan.
0: And as far as the DEXA scan itself goes, what does that entail? So people kind of know when they go in for this what to expect.
2: So the DEXA scan, it's pretty much going to be just an X-ray. They're going to have the, the the patient lie down, and, and it's going to be an, an X-ray of the, the lower back. Um, where with with the um, sometimes you can have you can actually find like the the vertebral fractures as well. But this is this this test is really designed to see like how how dense the the, the bone is. Um, with X-rays, it's a two-dimensional um, view, so that that's that can be the limiting part. Uh, now there's there's a uh, trabecular score and trabecular score kind of gives us a little bit more insight of, of how the the actual infrastructure is um, the unfortunate part was that up until last year is it wasn't uh, it wasn't paid for by the insurance companies and this year uh, they decided that finally that to to pay the the radiologists to do this and uh, there's there's one one uh, I know of one uh, professional radiology they they're doing the trabecular score and and uh, it's it's a great help because um, you you don't just want to have the, the Dexa like this is an, an extra help that can help you see what how bad the, it really is the problem.
0: Does it take a while or is it pretty quick?
2: It's pretty quick. I mean the like the 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 Dexa and the trabecular score um, will take about you know five ten minutes. yeah it's nothing. It's not it's not bad. No. Do-
0: yep. Dr. Setio Alvarado, folks, is El Paso board certified in medicine with an added qualification in sports medicine. Uh, they've recently expanded their location, 2267 Treywood, Suite G2. Parents, summer right around the corner. We talked about it earlier. The Desert Institute of Sports Medicine will be offering summer specials for sports physicals for just 20 bucks. You can call to set up an appointment, 915-256-9751. That's 915 915-256- 256 9751. Doc, always great to see you. Look forward to having you back uh, with us uh, here in the studio uh, very soon. Thank you, guys. Start of hour number two here on Sports Talk. Welcome back, everybody. Steve Kaplowitz with you along with Adrian Broadus as we continue here on this Friday afternoon. We've got a special treat for you right now. Brand new book out, and this is great, by the way, just in time for Father's Day or for Mother's Day. Hey, if there's a mom out there that's a huge baseball fan, you can pick it up this weekend. They'll love it. She'll love it. So will the dads. It's called True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. And with us right now uh, via Zoom is the author of the book, New York Times bestselling author, Kostya Kennedy. Kostya, great to have you on the show here in El Paso, and uh, congratulations on the book. How
3: are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate it, Stephen. Good, good to be with you tonight. Well,
0: I'll tell you what, uh, you picked a subject that I think uh, is so uh, just still to this day, such a great topic, a great name to discuss in, in Jackie Robinson. And this being the 75th anniversary of uh, Jackie breaking the color barrier. You tell me, Kostya, how long have you been working on, on a project like this and, and really putting uh, all this together?
3: Well, so it's sort of been floating around in, in my alleged head for uh, for some time. You know, uh, during my time at, at Sports Illustrated, I did a few sort of uh, pieces and things around Jackie. And about eight, nine years ago, I did a piece on Rachel Robinson, his widow, um, and and that was when I guess it started moving into more of a reality into my mind that I felt there was a a new story to be told and a different way of looking at it. And then the past couple of years has been when I've really been like, you know, focused on it, uh, really reporting and really writing it over the past couple of years.
0: I guess the toughest part for you when you put this together is well there's a lot of uh, interesting parts of this book, true, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, first off, picking the four years that you decided to concentrate on and and going on on those seasons, so specifically for those people that are uh you know getting ready to pick up the copy of the book, part one is the spring of nineteen forty six part two then the summer of nineteen forty nine Part three, the autumn of 56, and part four, the winter of 1972. Was was it difficult trying to come up with which years, specifically from those four seasons, you were going to really focus and base the book on?
3: Well, it was, so uh, the four seasons, just to be clear, they're, they're those actual season, and then as you're kind of alluding, but just to hammer it home, kind of, it's also metaphorically, the spring, summer, autumn and winter of Jackie's public and athletic life. So I knew that I wanted to have sort of distinct periods that the years needed to be different enough in a way they had to represent uh, a different time in his evolution as a man, as a baseball player, as well as sort of the evolution of the local and larger environment around him. So I had that Steve as sort of a premise going in. Um, and I sort of early on felt and realized that I think 1946 had been, certainly it's known that that was when he played for the Montreal Royals, but I felt it was underreported, even for all the work that's been done on on Robinson. And it really was a, such a crucial year. Of course, the, the year that we recognized him integrating baseball with the major leagues in 1947, as, as it should be. But in terms of like sort of on the ground, what he was doing, he was kind of integrating baseball really in 1946 when he was the only black player, except for a couple of weeks when he had a black teammate. And in all white internationally, they were the top major league, uh, top minor league. So it started off with 1946 as sort of a, a, a jumping off point to get myself rolling on those four years.
0: And, and one of the nice things about 46 was, and, and, and as you read the book, you'll understand this. Fans in Montreal love Jackie. I mean, they really did. He was a hero over there. And and as tough as it was breaking into Major League Baseball the following year in Brooklyn, I think the Robinsons really, uh, especially from reading the book, Kasia enjoyed their time out in in Montreal in that '46 season.
3: No question. You know, the there was certainly racism exists in Canada, of course, but but the. Sort of black-white divide that was especially prevalent in our country in in those years wasn't really there in in 1946. It was more the the tension was more around French English speaking and religious tension. So it was it was just less of a thing. It wasn't as big of a deal. Um, and exactly as you're saying, they were welcomed, and it put, gave them sort of a respite. It gave them. A, uh, a warming hut—it's kind of the analogy I used uh, for the, for what was to come. Because during that year, they did play a lot of games in the states. There was only Montreal and Toronto that were actually in Canada. So they they were in Buffalo, Baltimore. They came down to Louisville for the uh, minor league World Series, the Little World Series that year. So they got exposure as well as, of course, in spring training to some of what was to come. But they also had a place where they were a little bit protected. Uh, a little bit protected from some of the uh, the, the resistance and, to, to what he was trying to do. And it was also a way, last thing I missed, to, to get him used to the celebrity. Yeah. He'd been a, a, a well-known football player, but it was nothing like this, you know, to go out and in Montreal, wherever he was, and have – I mean, they had big crowds. They had fifteen to 20,000 people coming, not like major leagues, but big crowds. A lot of black, uh, Canadians, African-Americans coming around to see him in his game. So it was beginning to get a taste of what was to come.
0: And in that World Series against Louisville, uh, he was treated really harsh by the fans and, and just had a bad experience in Louisville in general. So when he goes back to Montreal, fans, I guess, had heard about that, and they made sure that they returned the favor when Louisville was coming up, right?
3: Yeah, that was the big thing, and those fans were a little like, you know, they were polite fans, a little like maybe the St. Louis crowd today or something like that. They didn't really boo, but they heard about what had happened to Jackie in the first three games in Louisville, you know. And, and this was 1946 in the South. There were segregated uh, stands. There was a lot of resistance. Jackie didn't it was didn't play that well in it. And, when he came back up, they were those fans in Montreal booed every every Louisville Colonel that came up. And Jackie said he took a little solace from that, or took a little support from knowing they kind of had his back.
0: Kostya Kennedy with us here. The book, True, the Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. We're discussing it uh, with the New York Times bestselling author here on Sports Talk. How difficult was it for you when you started to put the research together for that forty-six season in Montreal since probably very few people, if any, are still alive from that time that could give you firsthand accounts? How do you go about putting all of that together and piecing it together for the book?
3: So there, there, are, there were some people still alive and, and are still alive, um, and I was lucky enough to speak to them. So, you know, maybe they were 12, 15 in 1946, mm-hmm. that kind of age. Um, and if you were at that age and interested at all in sports or just in general, you were aware of this happening, right? So there were people who, who really knew about going to the games. There was one person, the, the a, a sports radio personality, named Mitch Melnick in Montreal and his mother, Mitzi, was 15 years old that summer. She's alive and sharp and ha- actually had a picture she had taken in 1946 there. And there were a few other. There were people in the Black community who'd gone to the Black church where he went and could remember him the way kids did. So I had that, Steve, as a start. There's a lot of newspapers, and I was fortunate. I don't speak French, but I was fortunate to have some people who could help translate the French as well as there were English-language newspapers. Um, so so there was a lot. I looked at contemporary uh books and you know it's it, it's a big it's a big sort of you cast a huge net and try to find what you can pull out summer of 49 is
0: is the second season that you look at and at that point would you say that's really when Jackie started to just transform himself into somebody that wasn't just the person who broke the color barrier in baseball but arguably you could look at that 49 season and say it was the best of his career, and it was probably uh, the best uh, in baseball at that time.
3: Yeah, it's exactly right. So you know, he was he was a good player in forty seven. He won Rookie of the Year. He was a very solid player in forty eight, but forty nine, which was also the first year when he decided, I'm not going to take it anymore, so to speak. His first two seasons, he had sort of turned the other cheek as had been had been talked about. And even though Robinson was hit with pitches more than anybody else in baseball those two years. He just picked himself up, run down the first. In 1949, he returned to being the sort of fiery player that he had been uh, in the Negro Leagues when a teammate said Robinson is up to his neck in every game and was really aggressive, really loud, really into it. and it transformed him to be exactly as you said. He wins MVP that year. He basically, by every measure, you know, if you use war statistics from today and everything, he led the, both leagues in war. He was basically the best player alive. And he actually, that probably was his peak peak year. 53 was also a huge statistical year. Um, there's, there's just a little core there. Of course, Jackie started a little late because of segregation in the war. So he's a little older when he came in. But there's about a five year stretch when he's just putting up, you know, Hall of Fame bonafide numbers. I think people sometimes forget what a great player he was at his peak.
0: You're right, and and really, what a great team the Dodgers were. People also forget Dodgers Yankees had so many meetings in the World Series over about a, a seven or eight year stretch. It seemed like uh, that was the norm. Those were the two best teams in baseball. Brooklyn built it up and 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 were just dominating the National League. Yankees had their great teams in the AL, and you know these two they, they were regulars in the World Series. And yet by '49, Kostya, not every team in baseball had fully integrated at that point. There were still teams that had not uh, been able to break the color barrier themselves.
3: Yeah, no, there were many teams that had not at that point. Um, I mean, it was not until 1959 when the Red Sox uh, became the last team to integrate. Um, and, and in 49, there was, there was really very few black players in the league. They, they were coming up onto the Dodgers. They were coming onto to the Giants, mm-hmm. the Indians, the Braves. It, it, most of the really good teams in those years were the teams that had integrated. Yeah. Uh, the Yankees were the one exception, a team that was pretty slow to integrate. They had Elston Howard, but they didn't really bring um, black players onto their team as part of the team, and they still continued to have success. Otherwise, it was mainly the team that did integrate that had more success.
0: As Jackie started to fight back, and, and what I mean by that is he wasn't afraid to go after players that had gone after him those first couple of seasons when Branch Rickey finally said, okay, now you can take your shot and and do that. Was Jackie the kind of player that always commanded all that respect inside his own clubhouse? We know what he was like to the baseball world, but what about as, as a teammate? Was he one that just everybody on that club uh, just respected for what, you know, his, what he meant to, to, to him, not just the game, but obviously to uh, the African-American world when it came to breaking the barrier?
3: You use the word respect, and I think that just on a pure athletic standpoint – He was such a good player, even on a team, and you alluded to how good the Dodgers were that had Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, and then Roy Campanella. You know, had had some really Carl Farillo, a lot of really good, good players. But he was an outstanding player, so that breeds respect. And the the simple pressure of not only people who are, you know, resistant to what he's doing, but even the supporters. So African-American newspapers are saying when Jackie comes to bat, he represents all of us right? That's a lot to have on your shoulders. And ball players and professional athletes respect that. So the respect, this guy's going up there with all that weight, all those expectations, all the negative saying everything, and he's still performing at that high level. He had a huge amount of respect. He wasn't sort of, you know, a happy-go-lucky guy that everybody loved uh, walking in, but but he was respected uniformly and had a core of really good close friends.
0: As, as a ball player, about as intense and fiery an individual on the field as you're going to find, right?
3: Yep, absolutely. Um, and, and he actually – the they're the Enos Slaughter was a player from the South who he'd had – Robinson had a little bit of a sort of a rub-up against in his first year. And But he would always say Slaughter with another guy like that. And Robinson would say, I might, we might not see an eye on something, but he played the way I play. Um, And and he was a a really he played the game right. Robinson played super hard, um, as did Pee Wee Reese in a different kind of way. And that was a big part of, of what made the Dodgers so good.
0: We're talking with Kasha Kennedy here on Sports Talk the name of the book True The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson it's just out and it's available now bookstores everywhere plus Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com you can check it out. When we come back more uh, conversation on the remaining two seasons uh, in the book and then we'll keep things moving here with uh, Kasha Kennedy right after Charlie 1 and this traffic update. 21 past the hour as we continue here on Sports Talk We're joined by Kostya Kennedy. He's got his new book out, True, the Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. We've talked about the first two, and now we move to the autumn of 1956, which was Jackie's last year. Uh, in baseball uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, there's a lot of way, a lot of places you could have gone on on this particular part of the book, but I like the fact that you you went with really his last go around in in baseball and what it was like, especially as rumors started to circulate about the potential move to the West Coast and. Um, you tell me uh, when you started, you know, really going into to 56, Kasha, did Jackie know that that was going to be the end for him or did he think he still had a, a couple of years
3: left to go? I think some point in that season, he started to realize it was time. You know, that year, he was already even coming into that year, he'd taken a little bit of a pay cut. 1955, which is an, a well known year in baseball history and certainly for. Dodgers fans, the one year they beat the the Yankees in the World Series, but it was a tough year personally, statistically, on the field for for Robinson. Um he'd gained a lot of weight and he had various health issues. And he sort of took it upon himself to lose a little of that weight, refocus. And in fifty-six he really had a very solid, uh, strong, integral year for the Dodgers. Not at the peak level that he was. Uh Certainly not, but but a player who without whom they would not have gone to world Series as they did, but as the year went on, um he also was having certain issues with management, he had now begun to look at a life beyond baseball, explore what might happen. It became kind of clear to him that that was it and, and and that he was going to be somewhere else come nineteen fifty seven.
0: I think the toughest part is that he was coming off that World Series win and they had been to the series so many times and again in nineteen fifty six. I wonder how difficult it is to know that you're still on a team that is in the middle of a dynasty run. One World Series win to prove, but so many trips that you know the Dodgers they, they they dominated the National League for such a long period. They just weren't able to get by the Yankees, which was their obviously their arch enemies.
3: Yeah, I mean it was uh, that's another thing that might get overlooked. It was so good. They went to six World Series in in, in ten years. Uh, in the years Jackie was there. Um, but you know it's funny, and there was also talk around the Dodgers and Steve about them moving to LA. That was very much in the air. It, it happened one year after Jackie retired, uh, so there was there was stuff going on in there. But Jackie never he never looked back. The way you think, the, the way some athletes sort of seem to have a little remorse. Oh, I could have could have pushed it another year. I could have had it. He didn't seem to have that. He he pretty much embraced his second life. Pretty fully afterward, uh, and felt that he had gotten everything he was going to get out of the game. So. Uh, he, he seemed at peace with
0: that. He's traded to the New York Giants and then ultimately decides to retire rather than play for the Giants. How tough a decision was that and do you think Jackie would have maybe even given it a, a little more thought because as tough as it was to play for the hated Giants hey, if I still have something left to show and they sent me to my division rivals, hey, I can now team up with Willie Mays and come out and, and show everybody that there's still something left in 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 number 47
3: yeah you know i don't it's what you're saying makes a lot of sense but i just don't think jackie really looked at it that way when he when that trade happened jackie had already actually taken a job with uh chock full of nuts as a vp and he was making the same amount of money that he made as a ball player remember ball player salaries were perfectly good but they were nothing like we weren't crowning kings the way we are today Mm -hmm. so he got a job that was you know paid as well he had he'd given his word to to do this, and he promised look magazine that he would reveal this information to he was going to retire and take this job in their pages exclusively. he was paid for that, so when the trade happened, it was between the time when he'd taken the job and before he'd gone public with it so he didn't immediately say, hey, I'm not going to go to the Giants. He actually got a telegram from Willie Mays saying, welcome to the team. Wow! But then when that Look Magazine article was coming out, he said, listen, I can't go. He wrote to Horace I'm saying, it's nothing to do with your organization. Horace Stone was the owner of the Giants, and uh, I just am not ready. to. Uh, I've gotten a better offer. Um, and he seemed to be, you know, that seemed to be honest with the way he embraced that second, second life. He, he seemed to really be ready for it.
0: It's just so funny because you see number 42 in a giant uniform and it would it would it would be a mind blower but yeah. it just also goes to show you that in 1956 or 57 uh, chock full of nuts and baseball was on par. Money wasn't like it is today, and a lot of these guys had jobs in the off season when they were done playing their baseball year. And if a company's going to offer you money and you're not going to have to go through the grind of put your body through the rigors of playing baseball, that probably was pretty appealing to somebody that was already in his late 30s at the time.
3: Exactly. I mean, he had a job, he had some security, He was in an easier life. He thought he might have a little more time with his kids and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to your point when in the height of his career, Jackie had different jobs in the, in the offseason, just as everybody else did, basically, he sold TVs for an appliance store uh, in Queens for a while. Other guys worked at, at hardware stores or at, at car dealerships. So it was a very different world in terms of the money that was coming in.
0: Kostya Kennedy with us. The book True, the four seasons of uh, Jackie Robinson uh, here on Sports Talk as we continue. So the final season, uh, which is uh, really his his last few months before he passes away. By the time of the winter of 1972, Jackie was not in good health at all. It deteriorated. And even though he was only in his early 50s, Kostya, he went through some personal tragedies. And his own health was was really something that he was having a very hard time with.
3: Yeah, it's really a fascinating year. And this is the year that I sort of came upon in doing my research. He did die in 1972, as, as you say. That was in late October. And earlier in that year, very early on, he'd gone to the funeral of Gil Hodges, the teammate of his with the Dodgers, who also died very young. Um, and at that point, he saw a bunch of his old teammates who he hadn't seen for a while. Uh, Don Newcomb, Joe Black, others. And they sort of brought him back into the game. Jackie had been out of baseball, been distanced. He hadn't been going to the old-timers games. He hadn't been involved in any way. And they got him sort of back involved. He went out and did something with the Dodgers. He ends up being in the World Series in October, um, right just before he died. And throughout that whole year, even though exactly as you say, he wasn't failing health at, at just the age of 53, he couldn't see very well. He had circulation issues. But he was extremely active. He continued. He was, he, they started a low-income housing construction company. He was, went out to Chicago to do uh, something for the, the Rainbow Push Coalition. He was, he was out and about and being extremely active right until the last week of his life.
0: It's 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 remarkable, and you look at his lasting legacy. Uh, here we are, what um, you know, some fifty years later, and you still see the impact he's had on baseball. Not just Jackie Robinson Day, when everybody wears the number forty-two, but ultimately the, just the legacy he's left uh, on the sport and on life, and on uh, just uh, I, I think um, just American history. That's the best way to put it. Not to mention Rachel Robinson's still alive, and she's able, along with uh, the rest rest of the family to just let that legacy continue.
3: Yeah, she, she's still with us. She'll turn 100 in July. And what she did by starting the Jackie Robinson Foundation in 1973, right after Jackie died, uh, was a remarkable thing. It sent hundreds of kids to school, paid them, mentored them. Um, what she and and Sharon and David, the kids, have done is, is keep that alive and protect it. You know, there's a reason, Steve, why we haven't seen a Jackie Robinson bobblehead day Put out by MLB. I think there's some knockoffs out there, but and that's because Rachel Robinson said, "No, nah, I don't really see him shaking around his head like that." Um, so she's protected his legacy, furthered his mission um, in, in a really important way. Last question before
0: we wrap things up with you, Caution. We appreciate the time so much. You've been terrific. For people that pick up a copy of True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, especially after listening to our conversation, what do you feel like they will get most after they get done reading the book?
3: I hope they're going to see a a different side of of Robinson that's maybe known. He, he, he was very adaptive to his situation, but he was also extremely consistent and focused on what he was trying to do. The other thing is is his his baseball playing and what he meant to people as a player is not separated from all the other work he did when he worked with Dr. King and, and everything outside of uh, baseball. He was, Really, you know, he touched people in an in a, in a emotional way to see him in his height, the way he played and and how he went about things. So those are a couple of things that, that certainly stayed with me in, in digging into the book and, and I hope will stay with people. Well
0: said. Great job, Kostya. We appreciate the time. Again, true the four seasons of Jackie Robinson. Pick it up, folks. Get it now for moms in time for Mother's Day, or you can even get it for the moms and then pass it to the dads for Father's Day here uh, coming up uh, next month. Appreciate it once again, and have a great weekend.
3: Great to be on with you, Steve. Really enjoyed it.
0: He's Kostya Kennedy, folks, as we continue here on Sports Talk. We'll come back with more in a moment. First, let's go to Adrian and get this bottom-of-the-hour Sports Center update. Adrian, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Kostya Kennedy was terrific. Uh, Again, another book on a subject that's been written about so many times, Jackie Robinson, but when you think about what he meant and really listening to the different parts of his life that he broke down, uh, it's so fascinating because it really encompasses the, the whole life from when he was first getting ready to break the color barrier and, until uh, his last you know his last moments
1: yeah and and he really did a great job of getting first-hand accounts of people who watch him like that story yeah. when he goes to Montreal gets those uh you know friend like uh people who speak in French that everything translated talking to people who were thir- 12 13 years old at the time watching Jackie uh when he came over there I mean that's amazing right there just to hear all these accounts and all the great stories uh that came with it
0: it's true and the good news is as far as brooklyn goes carl erskine's still alive that's so you right. could always talk to one of his teammates and get his thoughts and accounts on on how things went with jackie because he's talked about that a lot when he's joined us on the program
1: very sharp individual right there and carl erskine and he and yeah that, that's exactly right you can get a first-hand account as as uh, somebody who played with him
0: uh-oh yep You know what this means before we get to story time with hags coming up in about 10 minutes. It is time for Adrian's movie review. Now, yesterday was Rocky four. I can't wait to hear what movie you watched last night. So last night I watched Fear and Loathing at. No, I'm just kidding. I watched
1: uh, Rocky Five last night.
0: Now wait a minute. How many Rockies have you seen prior to four and five? Did so, you see the first three? Yeah, so
1: I saw the first three. That's exactly right. Haven't seen. Uh, I've seen Rocky Balboa. Haven't seen Creed Two. Uh, seen part of Creed. Seen parts of it. Okay, seen so you've it seen
0: parts of Creed. You haven't seen Creed two. You watched Rocky Balboa, which is kind of like Rocky six.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I kind of I agree now after watching five. Although I'll tell you, after five, I understand why they took such a, a long <laughs> hiatus, Steve.
0: Was there even another Rocky after 6 or did they go from Rocky Balboa to Creed?
1: They went to, from Rocky Balboa to Creed. All right, listen,
0: yeah. enough of me. You uh, give me your thoughts on Rocky 5.
1: Um, so it starts off Rocky, he's fallen on hard times, which is so weird. I mean, it's like adversity is hitting him left and right and even hitting him in his pocketbook. He's broke. He's uh, he has doesn't have any money and uh, you know his accountant mismanages everything. It's Polly, he loses it all. He's dealing with like brain damage after his fight in Rocky Four. Uh, dealing with mentoring a young boxer in Tommy Gunn, but then he's also has a failing relationship with his son. I mean, it's just so much is going on with Rocky. Uh, fast forward into this movie. Tommy really wants to f- start fighting. He he gets into it. He wins the title, and then he wants to fight Rocky. Well, Rocky doesn't want to fight, and so uh, they don't actually fight. Steve. It, long story short, they they have this kind of street fight. It's That's not what an it actual is actual fight. It's a
0: street fight. That's it, right.
1: It's a street fight, and it's like what what's going on here? Like I I felt like this. You know the the plot to this one really fell flat. I, I, I think it's it's mildly entertaining. I guess if you're a Rocky diehard, you're gonna like it. Um, I just you know this one was probably the worst Rocky in the series. I think uh, Rocky Three's up there for me as far as bad other Rocky
0: movies. What? Yeah, Rocky
1: Three. Rocky Three, man. Seriously, you, know. you
0: never liked Rocky Three. Why did you like Rocky Three? First off, I was like um, ten when it okay. came out. So you like. But number two. You got Thunderlips, you got Mr. T, Mickey dies, you got Apollo coming back and training him when his life was a mess, and I I mean, it was the great storyline, it was everything you could possibly want. They killed off Mickey, and then his former opponent comes back and helps him beat the baddest guy on the planet, and on top of that, you get the Hulkster before he's Hulk Hogan, throwing him through the ring ropes into the crowd. I mean, what more do you want?
1: No, you just had the cameos right there. Like, if you, like... Uh, Mr. T, if you like Hulk Hogan, you, you I didn't know all those. Hulk Hogan was
0: when I watched. I thought that's the biggest dude I've ever seen. He was huge. I had no idea who Hulk Hogan was. In so that was 1983. like a That was like what helped him break through. Absolutely, it's what helped him break through. That was his breakthrough. Was Rocky Three? Rocky Three.
1: I felt like the story fell flat. I felt like it was. Oh, I thought Jesus. also felt like it was redundant. Like you how saw could this- you
0: compare Rocky? Five to rocky three
1: we saw this story in rocky one and two it was like they, they just did the same thing in rocky three it was the same exact thing it was kind of like in between uh the patriotic type of rocky oh. and then the silly type of rocky i i just didn't really like it
0: all right but you loved rocky four you gave Rock listen you get yes. you didn't like this is this is what blows me away about you 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 hated rocky three but you gave rocky four eight bananas well, I'll give the OG
1: at Rocky like 10 bananas, the golden banana. This All this right. pass, real quick, this pass Rocky, Rocky 5, it gets two bananas for me.
0: Well, that's being generous.
1: That, yeah, that is two bananas. Listen,
0: I've watched every Rocky. I thought Rocky 5 sucked. I thought it sucked then. I think it still sucks now. I'm happy you trashed it. I still can't believe. This is a hot take. Like, if Hags was right now on with Hags hot takes, he would tell you, That putting Rocky three in the same breath as Rocky five is a definite hot take.
1: Laughable, some good cameos, but it falls off. I mean, it's it felt you know. I honestly, I probably hadn't seen you know Rocky three in a long time. I guess it's time to rewatch that one. But um, you know, I I really liked Rocky one and two way more than that one.
0: Well, they're different because he hadn't won the belt in either one or two until the end of two. Does he win the belt? That's That's right. Yeah. That's the whole thing, and you know, I mean, then he kind of gets—he thinks he's—he's you know, he's beating these cream puffs. Everybody's happy, and then all of a sudden he sees Clubber Lang, and Clubber Lang means business, man. He's coming to get you.
1: By the way, real quick, back to Rocky Five. That hat that Sylvester Stallone wore is is disgusting. Like no one should have no no one should wear that kind of hat.
0: Was he still married at that point to Adrian? Yes. So she hadn't been killed off yet. No. You know, they kill off somebody in like every movie, it seems like, don't they?
1: Yes, it does. It really seems like. And, and you start hanging on to these characters, and then when I mean, they when they die, it's tragic and all that stuff.
0: I mean, think about it. They kill off Mickey in three, Apollo in four, Adrian and Rocky Balboa. Then I think by the time Creed was around, they kill off um, uh, his brother-in-law. He's gone. I don't know, maybe they didn't kill off anybody in Rocky Five. You know what they killed off? They killed off the franchise, because that's when the movie went down the toilet.
1: Yeah, that's a, I understand why it was such a long hiatus. 1990 is when this one uh, was, uh, it came out, and yeah, it took a while for Balboa to come out.
0: He didn't like the guy that was like the the uh don
1: king spoof that i did actually like that no I, I i will go back and say i did like that what was his name like green or something like that i forgot his name but that, yeah. that guy was pretty funny
0: all right well anyway there you go with adrian's movie review tonight rocky five two bananas when we come back tim haggerty and a uh, story time plus we'll get hag's thoughts on the rocky uh series as sports talk continues 600 espn el paso